Hello, and welcome to As My Whimsy Takes Me. I'm Cara Sellison. And I'm Sharon Shu. And today we return at long last to have his carcass. And Cara, you and I are both like wheezing with laughter because it has been such an epic journey to get to this point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we this is our fifth attempt, I think. I think so. Or it might even be more than that because uh but I know that we recorded at least two full episodes that then we that weren't usable because uh they didn't get edited in a timely manner, mm-hmm. which was that was on me. So that's two full episodes that we binned. And then multiple times we've tried to record and been plagued by technology. Um, we recorded most of an episode and then my audio was unusable. We've tried so hard. We've tried so hard. I'm like, <laughs> what What do the technology gods want from us? <laughs> what can we sacrifice know. to them? I'm ready to drown your microphone. Maybe Maybe that will appease the gods. I, you know, we, I, we thought it was the splitter and I did do the ritual burning of the splitter in effigy, but yeah, now I'm starting to think it might be this microphone and I just need a new microphone. But anyway, anyway, hello everyone. Yes. We really want to talk about Havis Carcass. We want to talk about it so much. We do. And we want to get out of this damn book. (laughs) I think the book might be cursed too. Yeah. We, we, if we could just get through this book, surely the rest of the series will be smooth sailing. But for some reason, it's a little bit like how they can't find the body mm-hmm. because it's caught on the rocks underneath the, you know, and weighed down. 300 pounds of gold. I feel like we also are the corpse of Paul Alexis. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. But let's, let's pick up, let's, let's give a little life update. Um, let's, let's explain our, mysterious disappearance um yeah because it was not planned it no. was a complete you know like we had a planned hiatus you know in the election cycle and mm-hmm. it like both of us were just so intensely stressed that we couldn't like every time we talked to each other we just ended up talking about how stressed we were about the u.s political landscape because it was just literally all we could think about and so we, we deliberately took a hiatus <laughs> that mm-hmm. and then we were all prepped to come back and like we announced we were coming back and then a life threw a crowbar into the works and that hiatus was not planned it has gone on for years years yes and and thank you to our listeners who did reach out to us with concern and we're we're very sorry that we may have scared people with just kind of vanishing into the ether. Karis and I are both fine, um, but we had some things going on. Both of us did. Yeah. Um, Karis, do you want to talk about your thing and then I can give my update? Yeah, um, we've tried to record this multiple times now, so I've had some practice and I am uh, don't want to belabor it too long because every time I'm just like, oh God, I'm talking about this for so long. Um, but right when we were planning to come back, one of my sisters was given a terminal cancer diagnosis. Um, she has stage four stomach cancer, and I say has because she's still with us. Her cancer is being contained with treatment, um, and you know we're coming up on a, I guess the three year anniversary of her diagnosis. That's incredible. Um, yeah, she's doing amazing. Yeah, but processing that 
like I would sit down to try and edit the episodes that we had recorded and I just couldn't do it. Like I would just sit there and stare into space. So that's, you know, that I just really stopped being able to like function very well for a little Understandably. bit. Understandably. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So like that was the like upsetting life event that threw me off. But then like simultaneously you had a a life event that threw you off as well. Yes. Um, sort of on the other end of the spectrum in January 2021, I found out I was pregnant, um, which was very happy news for me yes. and, and my family and for Karis, who, who loves the babies. <laughs> it meant that sort of at the same time that you had the sit down and stare in the middle distance, I also was just walloped by first trimester exhaustion and mm. um, could not really even string two sentences together like it was it was pretty much all I could do to drag myself to work um thankfully I was still working from home at that point and then you know do the day's work um try to eat something for dinner and crawl into bed so it really I you know I was not one of those like blissfully unaffected people <laughs> um, I think they might be a myth I don't know I I was like yeah. can I be a Victorian lady your body was just like I'm trying to grow a whole human here I need I all know. of your energy all of it it's kind of wild to me that like this is how we make humans <laughs> right so that that took a lot of attention it's like we just both simultaneously went oh i can't Mm-mm. function yeah oh we are running at the bare minimum of capacity yeah and then i ran at the bare minimum of capacity for a long time because then there was the having of the baby and the mm-hmm. The immediate postpartum, um, yeah, and then the I, the not so immediate postpartum. Um, but my son is two years old now, which is wild. He's so grown. I'm like, he's not a baby anymore. He's not. Uh-huh. He just had this like leap of language too. We we did a big <gasps> trip to finally take him to the East Coast to see our you know our families and some cousins he hadn't met yet, and. Um, I think just being around some bigger kids, he's just like full sentences now. Um, oh my goodness. Yeah. And he had a growth spurt. So he really doesn't look <gasps> like he's all, he's got like kind of lanky limbs for, I mean, for a toddler, oh. not that lanky, but still, I'm, I'm just yeah, like, you know, but like, you're just like, oh, you're not a baby anymore. Mm-hmm. No, no. Yeah. So on the one hand, it feels like a three year time warp to me. And then on the other yeah. hand, I just have this like living reminder of time <laughs> passing, like in my house. <laughs> so yeah. Like, nothing messes me up when it comes to the passage of time, like other people's children. Especially, you know, like, children that I don't see very often. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just be like, they're how old? They do okay. what now? <laughs> you remember how, when we were young, like, nothing would annoy me more than my parents' friends being like, you got so big, you, you know, you grew, you're bigger than the last time I saw you. And it's like, yeah, duh, like, that's how time functions. And now... <laughs> I am like it's just person. shocking how fast it happens. I know, I know. I have my phone lock screen set up to just like show me random pictures of him. Um, and sometimes I just get attacked by one that's like, <laughs> you know, for, especially when he was in his like really roly poly like peak fatness stage before he started <laughs> crawling, and I'm just like, oh no, <laughs> why would it do this to me on a Wednesday morning? <laughs> <laughs> Yes. It's like the great poets say, time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. <laughs> Indeed. 
so yeah, that's that's where we've been. That's what we've been doing. Um, we've tried to keep the corpse on ice this whole time. And we very much want to be back. Um, we're also trying to set things up logistically to be a little bit more manageable for ourselves. So, so that we don't, because we did burn out a little bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so we, we want to prevent that in the future. Mm-hmm. That even if life wallops us again. Exactly. So we are moving to releasing one episode each month um, because we are still, you know, doing all the producing and web mastering and all that yeah. ourselves um and it's yeah this is a two-person operation it is if anyone would like to come and be our producer we would <laughs> <laughs> welcome you with open arms um and we're also going to try out starting a patreon um which we will put details in the show notes and on our on our website um but you know we want to we want to give some some extras for anyone who wants to do some monetary supporting of this mm-hmm. podcast. And it's, it's really, again, to try to, you know, make it sustainable for the, the web hosting fees. And yeah. And like, this has never been a for profit project. Right? <laughs> this is a passion project. Actively not really, for profit. <laughs> yeah. We just really wanted to do, and you know, like the hosting fees do add up. And so this is just something that we were hoping, you know, is a, a way to kind of offset those so that even when we do finish the series, because we're going to finish the series, Gonna do we're going to get to Gaudi Night, and we're going to get to Busman's Honeymoon. Once we finish, I would really like this podcast to be available, you know, in perpetuity, which does mean continuing to pay those server fees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so this is just kind of like a way to set up a, a fund to keep the lights on, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And I think hopefully also allow our community who... who Hopefully, surprise, we're back in your your ear holes. Um, we're, yeah, to... we're so glad to see all three of you. Yes, yes. <laughs> Thank you for not abandoning us. Um, but yeah, if it's something that you do want to to donate to, we'd be very grateful. And we'll try to find some ways to, um, I think, you know, help the community be able to talk to each other, especially mm-hmm. since Twitter <laughs> has sort of fallen apart. Um, so, you know, maybe some like open posts where everyone can talk to each other in the comments about what they love about the books. Uh, we will try to provide some blooper reels because, you know, we, as, as much as it might seem like we just flawlessly pull this off, we do not. <laughs> I say heavily sarcastic. Yeah. Like you'd be amazed. You'd be amazed how much material gets trimmed out when I'm exactly. editing the episodes. Yeah. How many rabbit trails. Exactly. And I think just, you know, we're also open to hearing from from folks what else they might be interested in, maybe some Q&As and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that we can commit to like, here's a whole separate stream of episodes that are exclusive. Um, but we will we will see what extras we can we can do. Yeah. So yes, let's, I think let's start with why is this book so hard to talk about, Cars? Because there's there's the technological <laughs> snafus, but then you know we've also had a couple times where we were, I think, especially early on, mm-hmm. our two binned episodes where we were trying to get back into things, and we found ourselves just recounting the plot, and that would take a gajillion years, and then we're like, wait, this isn't this isn't interesting. Yeah, like I tried to edit an episode, and I was just like. Oh no! Oh no, Sharon, this isn't good. <laughs> it's, it's just us giving a book report. I know, I know, and because you know, with other books, we've kind of tried to summarize the plot, um, and there's just so 
much here mm-hmm. that trying to summarize the plot takes so long because it's so complicated and it has so many little red herrings and things like context that has to be explained and it is it's a lot it's a lot and we kept getting stuck in that rut of trying to explain the plot <laughs> and then this happens and then this happens yeah and it's so funny to me because you know, we thought five red herrings was going to be our problem child. And <sighs> that was so easy. It was so easy in, in hindsight. Yeah. And I was looking over Sayers's letters to see, you know, if she'd said anything about writing this book or, you know, what's been collected. And she even says to her publisher at some point, like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm writing Have His Carcass. Thankfully, it won't be as like, intricate or as um, <laughs> detailed as five red herrings. And I, I think what she must have meant is, you know, she just made large swaths of this up instead of having to check right. real train schedules. But Oh my gosh, the real train schedules. I mean, this is a massively, massively complicated plot. You've got people in disguise, like double disguise. You've got all these aliases. You've got the like checking of the alibi and the tides and the things. It's just, it's too much. Yeah, which it never feels that... Like when you're reading it. Yeah. But like you don't get bogged down because mm-hmm. like my feeling is with five red herrings is that reading it as a reader, I get super bogged down in the timetables and the details and the mm-hmm. geography and, you know, like all of the people, except for the people having interesting relationships, <laughs> which, you know, we kind of talked about that years ago in those episodes about how you and I are both character oriented readers Mm -hmm. and so like our interest tends to be on what the characters are doing and then the the mystery plot is just kind of scaffolding (laughs) frankly whereas a different type of reader like our friend angela who joined us for those episodes you know finds all of that information really engaging Mm -hmm. and loves the train tables (laughs) have his carcass where there is so much character stuff going on is riveting to me but then when i when we try and break it down to discuss it and get caught up in all of those plot details. It is a quagmire. Mm-hmm. So we are just going to assume that everyone who's listening to this podcast has read the book. Yeah. So if you haven't read the book, please go and read it. <laughs> it's hard to discuss it without giving away the ending. Mm-hmm. Like, can we, like, how, can we even do that? Can we even hold off on? I don't know. Yeah. So we may just have to say, you know, like spoilers from here on out. If you haven't read it yet or haven't read it in a while and want to read it again without being spoiled, like, please pause this now <laughs> and go go read it and then come back. I also think that there's a way in which our, our kind of, like, inability to talk about the plot rhymes with Harriet and Peter's difficulty in unraveling the plot. And I'm... I'm thinking in particular, uh, we had a listener who wrote a paper, finally, somebody who wrote a paper. <laughs> and we actually we got our first citation, Karis, which which <gasps> is so exciting to me uh, as a former academic. But uh, the the title of the paper was Ruritania by the Sea, Detection by the Seaside in Dorothy L. Sayers' Have His Carcass uh, by Brigitta Hudachko. I think I pronounced that correctly. I'm, I'm deeply sorry if I didn't. 
But the the sort of central thesis here is that, you know, Peter and Harriet think that they are in a, a realist kind of locked room plot. And, and the reason they have so much trouble figuring out the mystery is they have to, you know, come to the understanding that they're actually in this whole other genre of the Ruritanian, uh, very difficult to say, um, romance, which was kind of like already a really outdated genre at the time that Sayers was writing. So Hudashko describes it as, you know, this genre revolves on outlandish tales of intrigue, unlikely members of the Russian aristocracy, and exaggerated and oppressive performances of heterosexual romance. So, you know, and they're they're very, very complicated, sort of like melodramatic plots. And so I think Peter and Harriet, for as long as they're kind of, and, you know, at one point they even like make fun of the Ruritanian romance. They they kind of come up with their own very convoluted explanation right at the police station together. And the you know, it's it's funny because it's like, oh, they're actually kind of closer to to the truth than than they think they are there. But I, I think that's the ways that Sayers is kind of trying on this the the skin of a different genre here. Um mm-hmm. really like you know, she has to put so many elements in, so many disguises, so many, so many red herrings, so many rabbit trails. And, and so on the one hand, it it prevents Peter and Harriet from arriving at, you know, what, what ends up being like a fairly simple conclusion. Um, And it has also prevented us from being able to talk about the plot (laughs) at all. (laughs) Speaking about like genres and genre awareness, we wanted to bring up Raymond Chandler's essay, The Simple Art of Murder, which we've mentioned it on the podcast before, and I think I kind of misspoke because I think I said something about it being a response to Busman's Honeymoon. Mm. And I had gotten mixed up because like, he does refer specifically to Busman's Honeymoon, but it wasn't written in response to that. It's it's from rather later. It's 1944, I believe. Yeah, it, yeah, it was published yeah. in 1944. So it, And it's not directly a response to Busman's honeymoon so much as it he's responding to some of the things that Sayer said in that introduction to the omnibus of crime where you know she kind of makes an attempt to break down the history of detective fiction right mm-hmm. I mean it's so funny because he starts off with this kind of long throat clearing right about how many sort of like middling <laughs> detective novels are published and he's very, he's like very grouchy about it. Yeah, which is, you know, like he's, he's referring to a different kind of era, mm-hmm. where, you know, like where pulp fiction got that like rapid churning out a ton of a certain kind of story that was popular with the general public and, you know, like everyone would read, which, you know, put with like we don't have in like written form so much anymore, mm. you know, like instead we kind of like have a certain genre of these procedural TV show or, you know, uh, that I think kind of fills, fills that same gap. <laughs> mm-hmm. The the CSI, CSI colon insert city. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, before people had that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is, he's really writing during the period of, yeah, again, the rise of Pulp Fiction, the rise of the mass market um, paperback, mm-hmm. right? Which is kind of yeah. fallen by the wayside now. I really wish yeah. they'd bring back the, the mass market paperback. Yeah. So convenient, so portable. Yeah. <laughs> so cheap. I mean, like, honestly, like, we wish that they would bring back the mid-list. <laughs> right? We wish that they, would, yes. that they would bring back things other than the bestsellers. Yeah. 
I did love that he writes, the average detective story is probably no worse than the average novel, but you never see the average novel. It doesn't get published. I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) is that so, sir? (laughs) I mean, but like the, the essential thing here is that he is kind of like coming down hard on the what's you know been defined by someone at this point as the golden age of detective fiction mm-hmm. you know from like world war one to the 1930s uh which you know sayers is squarely in that that golden age and um you know chandler is not totally dismissive but he he just feels that that genre of detective fiction is too contrived mm-hmm. and he, like he's really arguing for a gritty realism which i'm just like oh mr chandler raymond if only you could see how far we have slung yes to the other end of the spectrum yes the other thing that really made me laugh in this essay is you know so he does kind of do a summing up of some of the more what he calls outlandish golden age plots um and I will say, if you haven't read Busman's Honeymoon, don't look up this essay because he does spoil the the how done it at least. Yeah. One of the things he takes issues with is he's kind of like, yeah, the more intricately plotted, he, he sees that as really done for the benefit of like fooling the reader and fooling the mm-hmm. amateur detective. But he's like, you know, there's basically like no self-respecting police department would ever fall for, yeah. for something like this. Right. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I think you're think you're giving the police like a lot more cra- you know i mean it's sort of improving <laughs> that that at least when it comes to like solving solving homicide cases it's, it's like the the track record's not good at least in america <laughs> but yeah it's it's sort of in in chandler's view like having to set up a mystery with so many you know i what we think of as the airtight mystery what we think of as the, mm-hmm. the playing fair mystery where all of the clues are on the page mm-hmm. uh but there's sort of that sleight of hand to distract you from what's really important it's yeah like he's, he's just like one nobody commits a murder in this way and two it just doesn't make for really good literature mm. because it's too you're 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 asking the reader to like ignore too many too many aspects of the ways that people in reality just don't behave like this. Yeah, he says something about like the the type of person who's going to know like all of this minutia about, you know, different things mm-hmm. is not the same type of person that's going to be interesting to read about. <laughs> cough cough Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and and also that characters sort of become puppets, right? When they have to, because yeah. you, you have to move them from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because when I was rereading this, I was like, oh, he's actually more complimentary to Sayers than than I remembered because he he kind of wraps up the the golden age part with saying like Sayers herself shows that she would be annoyed by sort of the triteness or the cardboardness that's required from from some of these characters. And and we've mm-hmm. talked a lot about how we think her secondary characters and of course her main characters are so they become so fully realized and like fully fleshed out by the end of her writing career. Yeah, there's a great line in here where Chandler says everything written with vitality expresses that vitality. There mm-hmm. are no dull subjects, only dull minds. And it's just like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and he also says, uh, in this kind of section, he's responding to the fact that Sayers, you know, said in that introduction to Omnibus of Crime that the detective story does not, and by hypothesis never can, attain the loftiest level of literary achievement. And he quotes her, suggesting that this is because it's a literature of escape and not a literature of expression. 
And he says, I do not know what the loftiest level of literary achievement is. Neither did Eschlis or Shakespeare. Neither does Miss Sayers. <laughs> but then he later goes on to be like, but maybe Dashiell Hammett did. <laughs> yeah. And he says, some very dull books have been written about God and some very fine ones about how to make a living and stay fairly honest. Yeah. I mean, I think we do need to 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 at least glancingly mention that, uh, you know, a lot of the the mystery writers that he name checks specifically in this takedown are are British female writers. Uh, you know, he talks about Agatha Christie. He he mentions Sayers, and then when he's like, "But for a real detective novel, Dashiell, you know, like here are some dudes." <laughs> I mean, but he does he does take down some British men. He takes down A. A. Milne mm-hmm. uh, pretty thoroughly, which brings up like he brings up the Red House mystery specifically as something that's been touted as the the greatest example of golden age detective fiction. And then he kind of like takes it apart. And I'm just like, you know, I can't argue with you can't. because I read the red house mystery and I was not that impressed because <laughs> not only did I find it kind of dull, but I did solve it mm. like immediately, you know, like the mystery was not a mystery. I was just like, well, this is too obvious. So I don't know. Um, I don't know that he mentioned specifically like, why that one is named um, if it was held up by someone else as a, as the golden example. And I'm just like, yeah, no, it's not that great. It's (laughs) nothing to Winnie the Pooh. So. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting because on the one hand, you and I talk about how much we, we need the character building, but I think I also, I mean, I get really annoyed if I read a mystery where I'm like, okay, you know, this is going to happen. And then, this is going to happen. And then it's this person. Yeah. If it's too formulaic. Yeah. Like I do, or not, or just where the puzzle isn't intricate enough. So I'm like, yeah, I do. I am apologies to Mr. Chandler, but I, I do like a good puzzle box. You know, I do like, I, I think there's a reason I just love the golden age so much. And, and there's a reason that people continue to love it. You exactly. know, like if a year goes by without an Agatha Christie film, like, <laughs> can society survive it's so funny at at work i've sort of become a little bit notorious for if we all start watching a a murder mystery show like two episodes in they're like okay sharon who did it Um, (laughs) (laughs) and they're like you know just write it down on slack right now and we'll go back and fact check you um and there was one time i think we were all watching white lotus season two and they were further ahead than i was and I was like, well, I think it's going to be this. And then my two colleagues, my, my two immediate team members were like, we must immediately sidebar in a different Slack. And I was told later <laughs> that they were like, how does she know? <laughs> it's because you're genre savvy. It's because I'm, I'm like, yeah, I've just like read a million of these. It's At some point, it does get hard to like really come up with an original way to, to kill somebody. <laughs> Which isn't necessary, right? I think mm-hmm. it's like one of the reasons we were bringing up the Chandler uh, um, essay, which we like, I kind of just shoehorned this in here. I didn't approach this in a very organized manner. Um, But, you know, when we were talking about like the complexity of the plot and have his carcass, it occurred to me that like, if they had just beamed Paul Alexis with a rock, (laughs) they would have gotten away with it. Yes. And it's the whole business of, like, for one thing, using the razor and then using the razor in this completely, like, over-enthusiastic manner. <laughs> I like that as a descriptor. Like, for one thing, it's just like, okay, like, if you wanted this to be 
interpreted as suicide. That was a bad idea. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then why go through and like all the pains to go through to find a sort of supposedly untraceable razor that was actually so easily tra- like if you just walked into a drugstore yeah. and bought one in cash, right? Like, and, and generic razor, and, right? But like, you know, you had to go find this easily identifiable. And the whole, like, painstaking setting up the backstory of, like, the purchase of the razor and being able to blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you know, like, if they had just not bothered with any of that, and if they had just lured him to this isolated spot and hit him with a rock. Mm-hmm. Or pushed him down the stairs. <laughs> that shoved him in the ocean, they would have gotten away with it because it wouldn't have been traceable. You mm-hmm. know, like, even if Harriet had been on the spot and found the body and it hadn't got, you know, like, before it got washed out to sea. Yeah. And had been able to say, like, oh, no, this wasn't an accident. This was clearly murder. They still wouldn't have been. There was nothing they would have been able to do about it. Exactly. Because there wouldn't have been any traceable evidence. And, yeah, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense that we find out later that it's like, oh, there's theater people. <laughs> Only theater people would plan this kind of murder. <laughs> it's so true. It's just so overdone. And it... Like, all of their safeguards to try and make the perfect murder are what made it possible for them to be caught. And it's so stupid. It's so stupid. It really, it, I mean, yeah, th- these are not smart people, right? These are three toddlers stacked in a trench coat <laughs> in some ways, like, trying to get away with it. Um, but, and it makes me think of what Peter had said earlier in Unnatural Death, right? Where he's like, you know, it's often the cover up. Mm-hmm. That gives things away, and sometimes you just have to wait for the murderer to like panic and try to cover their tracks more, even though that that was an unfortunate tactic for Peter in that particular novel. But it's true, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah, and it, it works here, mm-hmm. you know, because like they're kind of at a standstill, and he's just like, well, let's just give them an opportunity to come and elaborate on their story, and they do, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they make it make it possible to like. Do all like to connect these dots, mm-hmm. and they think that they're doing it to make themselves safer, and they are in fact walking right into Lord Peter's trap. Right into it, yes. Um, With so much artistic flair, yes. <laughs> Just theater people, theater people. Isn't there a point at which Peter's like Henry Weldon is either? like the stupidest man alive or the most diabolical like there's just (laughs) like he's like he's just so perplexed because he's like this this feels like a clever murder but all of my suspects are immense morons like how how could it be i can't like i can't make these things square together and then it turns out like actually it was kind of a dumb murder too (laughs) yeah the thing is though is that it wasn't until we were kind of starting to take it apart to talk about it that I go, oh, this murder plot is stupid. <laughs> you know, because I never had that thought while reading the book. Mm-hmm. And it's because that's not what I'm paying attention to reading the book. Because I am so, all the stuff with Peter and Harriet is so good and so intense. That I'm just like, murder, why murder? <laughs> <laughs> Who's been murdered? Who's been murdered? Isn't isn't this murder just set dressing for them to have fraught conversations and for... Harriet to friendly notice that Peter Whimsy has a body and knows how to ride a horse. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, kind of, like, I think, like, the most, like, the, the crux of Chandler's essay here, where, like, the thing where that's most interesting about what he says, he says that, I think what was really gnawing at Miss Sayer's mind was the slow realization that her kind of detective story 
was an arid formula which could not even satisfy its own implications. It was second-grade literature because it was not about the things that could make first-grade literature. If it started out to be about real people, and she could write them, her minor characters show that, they must very soon do unreal things in order to form the artificial pattern required by the plot. When they did unreal things, they ceased to be real themselves. They became puppets and cardboard lovers and paper mache villains and detectives of exquisite and impossible gentility. <laughs> the only kind of writer who could be happy with these properties was the one who did not know what reality was. Dorothy Sayers' own stories show that she was annoyed by this triteness. The weakest element in them is the part that makes them detective stories. The strongest, the part which could be removed without touching the problem of logic and deduction. Yet she could not or would not give her characters their heads and let them make their own mystery. I like that he finishes, it took a much simpler and more direct mind than hers to do that. So it's a very backhanded compliment, right? She was just too clever and too smart and too complex in some ways to... But, but you know, it really comes back to, and, and we're certainly not going to be the first people to point this out, but there's that metafictional element where Harriet is struggling to write her novel, her next Robert Templeton novel in this book, right? And it's, she's like trying to move the pieces around. She's like, oh, I need like a lovering scene here. And they, but they like, she's, she's like, oh, they're too simple. And then we will see that keep carrying through into Gaudy Night where, like basically Peter gives her this advice um, years before Chandler's really, you know, talking about this of like, just let your people be real people. I think in this kind of middle stage of Sayers's career, her, her concern as well. Right. I mean, she's, she's written about, she felt that she couldn't just marry Peter off, like, you know, kill him off with marriage. Um, because I think, you know, she, she felt it wouldn't be, it would be so artificial. It would be so untrue to to the humanity of these characters to just be like, okay, you saved her from death and and like now off you go into the sunset and I never have to write you again. Like she she added, you know, in some ways this novel to to get the characters to a point in Gotting Night where where the romance would be plausible. Um and that's what they're squabbling about this entire time of like, how could we ever meet each other on equal plane? Right. So it's yeah. I think in, in a lot of ways, like, yeah, this is this is the book where Peter and Harriet become more I mean, I don't want to call them cardboard because I don't to me they're you know, they're never really that cardboard from the yeah. Ago, but I mean like I like Peter has had dimension from the first book and we've talked about that. An interiority, yeah. So yeah, I think Chandler is unfair a little bit mm -hmm. because I, I I think that what makes Sayers lasting, right? Because there are quite a few people that Chandler calls out by name in this essay. I'm just like, who, <laughs> you know, like obviously they were popular mystery writers of the time, but mm -hmm. they haven't, you know, they haven't lasted the way that Sayers has and yeah. that, you know, that Agatha Christie has, but Sayers and Agatha Christie, I think have lasted as the, like the queens of the genre for different reasons. Mm -hmm. Like I've just recently done a stretch of rereading a bunch of uh, Agatha Christie. And I did reach a point where I was just like, huh, these do get formulaic. And it was interesting to me how many times her main detective, you know, like whether it was Marvel or Poirot, like didn't show up until late. And it was, you know, and like the, the novel is actually from the perspective where like really about a different character. And she kind of, just then like name drops her her detective in there uh mm -hmm. so that they, and i'm just like oh like poirot is really just here to solve the mystery and sell books yes. <laughs> like the book's not about him it's about this other personality 
I think, yeah, I think you're right in that what people remember and appreciate and still read Christie for is just the inventiveness of the plots, right? Um, yeah. And what people remember and appreciate and still read Sayers for is the characters of mm-hmm. Peter, the characters of Harriet. I, I you know, I, that might be also why, there, like, there have been continuations of Agatha Christie. There are people who are writing mm-hmm. Poirot books, like, licensed by the estate, right? And right. they tend to be pretty successful. Yeah. Whereas I think there's just a much... Like, I mean, some people like the whimsy continuations, but I think the bar is so much higher there because you have Mm. to, you have to get the character work right. And that's really hard to do. Yeah. Well, like, I, like, there's also a part of me that's like, I, I haven't read the continuations. I haven't wanted to read them because (laughs) I'm scared. Yeah. And you know, like this is, you know, with respect to, um, the, the writer of those who, uh, Jill Patton Walsh. Um, who I'm sure approached them with a lot of respect for Sayers and uh, with reference to, you know, Sayers notes and all those things. Mm-hmm. Like, I like I don't need to be disrespectful to to her or her work. Um, but it's just like, it just doesn't, you know, it, like, it just wouldn't feel right. <laughs> and so, you know, it's just like, I'm just like, I don't, I don't want, it's not something where you feel like someone else can kind of play in the sandbox, you know, whereas the... In Christie, it's just like, oh, yeah, you know, you can have a free-for-all and it will still work. Yeah, like as long as the puzzle is really good and, you know, and Poirot makes mention of the little gray cells, like it'll hold together. Yeah, yeah. I, I think maybe that's the reason why there are so many Christie adaptations and so few Sayers adaptations. <sighs> My kingdom for a good Sayers adaptation. I mean, I am deeply fond of the ones from the 80s but we're due we're due for more yeah we are due for more and you know the old ones are not perfect but they uh, i do like the the main performances i of edward Heatherbridge and uh, dame harriet walter were i thought very good yes and then made up for maybe some kind of like subpar qualities in the scripts <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, we digress. We digress. We digress. We digress. Um, <laughs> that might be edited out and, and chucked into a Patreon outlook. <laughs> Here are all our random thoughts. <laughs> um, gosh, what was I saying? Where, 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 oh, um, yeah. So, like, Agatha Christie, enduring because she was just, like, inventive. And also because there's a lot of material to work with. You know, she was very, mm-hmm. that word that means that you do a lot of Prolific, prolific. She was prolific. Prolific, thank you. Yes, she was prolific. Um, whereas, you know, Sayers is enduring, I think, because of the, like, the quality of her character development and the quality of her writing, the intellectualism that's present. You know, like all those things continue to be engaging in in a different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah, I think that maybe a lot of other writers kind of like from those, from the same era who, you know, like, probably, you know, like, sold well in their own era or, like, were popular in their own era, like, haven't stood the test of time in the same way. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just like, you know, Chandler, you're not wrong. I'm just thinking of that meme now that's like, oh, someone you hate made a good point. <laughs> yeah. Not that I hate Chandler. I don't, I don't. Yeah, really no, I don't hate Raymond Chandler. To, yeah. Even if he doesn't love Sayers the way that he do, but <laughs> I think that, you know, I think that he respects Sayers. Yes, yes, that was... That was the thing that surprised me coming back to this essay. I was like, oh, there's actually, again, it feels backhanded, but like, he's actually quite complimentary to her. It was, it's, 
you almost sense this frustration of like, she could have been writing all this other stuff. And instead she did this. <laughs> it's interesting to me because those, like, I see that same frustration in Sayers, mm-hmm. you know, and, and like, you know, Chandler recognizes that same frustration in Sayers that she's trying to write these characters with authenticity and honesty and complexity while still putting them in these complex plots. Mm-hmm. And she just struggled more and more to do that in, and make it believable, which I think is one of the reasons why, you know, like in Gaudy Knight, there's not a murderer, mm-hmm. you know, like Gaudy Knight is a completely different type of plot because it's a poison pin mystery, which that's the kind of behavior that, you know, people will do like for more complex reasons, mm-hmm. you know, and it, and it's a much more believable thing than just like wanting someone to be dead which yeah. there's simpler ways to do that <laughs> <laughs> and i think we all love gaudy knight so much because she she or i don't know maybe her publisher now that she'd made them gobs and gobs of money <laughs> gave her like somebody gave her free reign whether it was herself or someone else to just it really explore and delve into the non-mystery bits right like the mystery bit of gaudy knight could be done in a hundred pages but it's really everything that surrounds it of sketching the senior common room and their concerns with such care and detail and obviously the plot between Harriet and Peter like and the 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 her love of Oxford that comes through like all of that is what makes it such a great book so I guess yes I am agreeing with Raymond Chandler in that in many ways the mystery part of the book is the least interesting (laughs) that's true of half his carcass like getting back to the book we're actually talking about this book Yeah, it's just like all, like, I was listening to the audiobook yesterday to kind of, you know, to refresh. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, all these parts where they're doing the mystery bit, like, they just feel like if it weren't for the fact that Sayers introduces kind of entertaining characters, they would be so bland. You know, like, Peter goes to track down the razor and he goes and talks to old Mr. Endicott and he talks to this you know, like old mil- like military man who owned the razor before. And like all of those, if those, if he, those characters weren't written to be entertaining side characters, so boring. To be excruciating. It, yeah. Excruciating. You know, and you know, like we get to the part where Harriet is trying to get information out of Henry Weldon and she's, you know, they go on this picnic picnic and she's got this like frilly, fluffy outfit and this big hat so that she can vamp him and it's like if that weren't so funny all of that would just be <laughs> so I think that's boring. the part where you're like oh this man is dumb <laughs> like like but it's so funny because he's such an idiot um and because harriet is so playing against type but like again recognizably mm-hmm. so right yeah that just speaks to sayers's skill though right that she's just, like she can get all of those pieces mm-hmm. in there and it's still entertaining for us who don't actually care exactly. about the mystery all that much well and it also i mean it's interesting because that scene really does a lot of character work in in terms of yeah you know harriet acting against type but it, we do get a lot of information i'm not going to go recap all the information because let's not fall into that trap yeah there's a lot conveyed exactly yeah i'm always really impressed i think when i am actively reading the book on how much Sayers, like, one, the misdirection that she uses. Because at one point, basically, Weldon grabs her. And it, it says something like, you know, then Harriet became truly afraid. And you think, because it's all been kind of set up as this kind of, um, 
you know, physical farce, I guess. Like, you, you think that Harriet's becoming afraid because all of a sudden he's, like, making a, a physical advance on her. And she's worried that he's gonna he's gonna assault her. But, you know, later on we find out it's because she sees this tattoo on his arm where she's suddenly p- putting the pieces together that he has been play acting this other person that she met on the road that day. I guess I did fall into the trap of, you know, again, so convoluted. Um, but it's, it's, it's conveyed with such skill and such like misdirection in the scene itself. I'm just, I just, oh, just always impressed with Sayers when I'm, when I'm in the book itself, even though I find this one impossible to talk about. I'm just like, oh gosh, uh, I, we've tried to do this so many times. I'm just like, okay, like which things have we actually recorded this time and which things <laughs> do we still need to, talk about? need to talk about? But I remember talking about them because we talked about them before. But speaking of the character development and the the overlap between the mystery and the character story and the character development, we have my favorite scene in the whole book, uh, which is when Peter and Harriet dance. And it's just so full of wonderful details. I love me a fraught dancing scene. Again, I, I imprinted so early on Pride and Prejudice. And right. just like, yes, when two people are dancing and able to say things to each other that nobody else yes. can hear. Yes, a fraught, and in like fraught dancing is a gold standard of interaction. And you feel like, I know that this is true because it works across all genres. <laughs> Because there's even a fraught dancing scene in Pacific Rim. And if you can have a fraught dancing scene... <gasps> You're right! If you can have a fraught dancing scene in a movie that is about giant monsters being fighting giant robots, then it'll work anywhere. <laughs> You're so right. Oh, that must be part of why I love that movie. Also, you know, I love a good training montage in a movie. Right. So all of that. Yes. It's just a good movie. I love Pacific Rim so much. So good. <laughs> but anyway, so, but yes, fraud dancing. And um, like this particular dancing scene, one of the details in it is that Harriet is wearing a wine colored uh, frog, <laughs> which, you know, earlier before Peter went off to trace down the razor or whatever, he said some, she mentions that she's going to have to get some clothes, you know, like she hadn't, she hadn't been on her walking tour with clothes that were appropriate for uh, the formal spaces of the hotel. So she's like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm going to have to go get some some things so that I can, you know, socialize and get information. And he tells her to get a, a wine colored frock because he's always longed to see her in wine color. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then she asks him, you know, like more specifically, like <laughs> poor Tor Sherry. Oh, he has it down to the vintage in the year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do remember we, we talked about this in a previous episode where we're like, of course he does. <laughs> of course he does. Um, but so she's wearing her claret-colored frock, ostensibly socializing with Mrs. Weldon and her son. But Peter has kind of carried Harriet off to the dance floor. And, you know, Harriet has this moment. Like, she's like, she knows that she looks nice. And she is aware that, like, all the women in the room are looking at Peter. And she, there's just, like, this moment where it's just like, you can hear the violins kind of start. <laughs> and then Peter is just like mystery focused on the mystery he laser focused talk, on the mystery he wants yeah. to talk about henry Weldon, and <laughs> harry is just like oh <laughs> like their wires got crossed that neither of them knew what genre they're in 
the bait and switch. It's so funny. But then they, like, they go on to have this scene, you know, we're, we're in Harriet's perspective primarily. Mm-hmm. And Harriet, it's very important that she should be the perfect, unemotional sleuth or, um, I forget what the actual word is, but you know, she's, it's a very important that she'd be like the perfect sleuth. And, like, not give on that she was kind of, like, prepped for him to make a romantic advance. Mm-hmm. And she might for once have been receptive. Mm-hmm. And he just put his foot in it. <laughs> <laughs> like, she was kind of thinking, like, yeah, this was the moment where he sh- he should be making, like, giving her a compliment. Or she's very aware, you know, this is the first time they have danced together. This should be a big moment for him. <laughs> <laughs> Says that Whimsy had never danced with her before, never held her in his arms. Um, it should have been an epoch-making moment for him, but his mind appeared to be concentrated upon the dull personality of an East Anglian farmer. It's so, like, I love all this, because, like, Harriet feels things about Peter that she hasn't admitted to herself, right? And, like, we mm-hmm. see her, especially in Gaudy Night, start to, like, process those feelings in a way that she doesn't and have his carcass. Mm-hmm. So like at this point, she's still feeling a lot of things that she doesn't admit to herself. Like she doesn't really admit her own attraction, you know, and then like, she's in this like weirdly vulnerable moment with him. Yeah. Well, she also, I, I feel like she often responds to her own attraction to him with like a kind of self-flagellation where, you know, even here, right. She it's, because she's she thinks he's preoccupied with the mystery. It says she fell a victim to an inferiority complex and tripped over her partner's feet. Sorry, said Whimsy, accepting responsibility like a gentleman. It's my fault. I'm a rotten dancer. Don't bother about me. Let's stop. Worse and worse, she was being peevish and egotistical. Like, we're still inside her mind there. So she's fully aware that she's, like, kind of self-sabotaging or that she's she's being so ungracious. But she can't break herself out of it. Yeah. Like, you get the impression that she's annoyed with herself. Mm-hmm. But then she's taking that annoyance out on, on Peter. Yeah, but, like, I think that, like, she's annoyed because she was so close to being vulnerable, you know, to him. Mm-hmm. And to, be like, to be open. And she was just like, oh, well, no, no. Like, not like this. Yeah. But then read your favorite line. Nancy follows up with my favorite line. Whimsy glanced down at her in surprise and then suddenly smiled. You know, so, like, he, like, abruptly realizes what's happening and goes, darling... If you dance like an elderly elephant with arthritis, I would dance the sun and moon into the sea with you. I have waited a thousand years to see you dance in that frock. Idiot, said Harriet. They made the circuit of the room in silence and harmony. (sighs) That's such a lovely image. It's so good. I love that line so much. If you dance like an elderly elephant with arthritis, I would dance (laughs) the sun and moon into the sea with you. Yeah, I think let's conclude there because they're going to continue to have emotional blowups. But let's let's yeah. let's end in harmony. Yeah, we'll we'll say they like they do have like a big. The thing about this book and about like the the mystery really just exists to keep them in each other's orbit, right? Mm-hmm. Because the more that they are in each other's orbit, and the more that they're kind of like forced to interact in these circumstances, you know, because like it's been two years since Strong Poison. We get hints that they've continued to be, to interact socially, mm-hmm. and that Peter has continued to kind of, like, try and get past the barrier that's between them. And he hasn't, you, you know, like, you don't feel that he's made a lot of headway. And then they're in these circumstances where there are overblown love affairs and kind of, mm-hmm. like, falsified romances. And I think that's part of what, like, sets them up to kind of have these intense confrontations, even though they don't get anywhere maybe productive but 
things get forced out into the open yeah. and it's like they just have to say the things finally yeah yeah i'm i'm looking forward to that in the next episode we will cover <laughs> the big argument yes which we will record soon which we will record soon we are recording this in november and so it should be out in december um, oh, and we should mention the anniversary. We One of the reasons we oh, yes. tried so hard to record this episode before, we really wanted to release an episode in October uh, because it was the 100-year anniversary of the first Lord Peter Whimsey, whose body was published 100 years ago as of October. That's just a fun milestone. Just yeah. a fun anniversary. So we were just like, oh, man, we... We it tried. would have been so neat, and the universe it would said, have been "Lovely, <laughs> thou shalt have no neatness." <laughs> and the universe said, "You will have nothing but nonsense, and <laughs> you will need to use multiple computers to record this episode because Karis has to have her headphones plugged into one computer and the microphone plugged into a different computer." And <laughs> the lack of adequate jacks in like any piece of technology now uh, it's like oh we all have to depend on bluetooth for everything what did you say you we were texting back and forth when you were trying to get set up and you were like it will be stupid but it might work <laughs> yes so i'm i'm crossing my fingers i'm crossing my fingers that that is so <laughs> and maybe we'll just get mugs made for for all our patreon supporters that say that in the meantime you can find us on the app formerly known as twitter and on Instagram as at WhimsyPod. That's Whimsy spelled W-I-M-S-E-Y. And you can find transcripts and show notes on our episodes on our website at asmywhimsytakesme.com. Our logo is by Gabby Vicioso, and our theme music was composed and recorded by Sarah Mahalik. If you've enjoyed this episode of As My Whimsy Takes Me, we'd love for you to give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on your podcatcher of choice. And we also hope that you'll tell your friends who love Dorothy L. Sayers as much as we do that we are back. So join us next time for more Talking Pitfall. listeners know how much we want to talk about Dorothy L. Sayers. We really do so we're trying so hard. We want to talk about it so much. <laughs> <laughs>